Will you pray with me? Holy Lord, thank you for the written word we have before us today. Thank you for revealing your redemptive plan through Jesus, the Son of God. Thank you for rescuing us from our enslavement to the kingdom of darkness in order to bring us into the kingdom of God. In this kingdom, Jesus Christ is king. No man, woman, or angelic being will ever have authority above you. May this truth encourage us, encourage us all as disciples to unite with Christ, who calls us to submit to his reign. And under his reign, we follow a law of love that he exampled to us by his very death. Lord, we ask that you transform us to be full of love and peace. We are still a broken people in need of sanctification. We need to take responsibility for our actions and submit ourselves to Christ, to repent when we have wronged, to put others above our selfishness, to love and encourage those in, in and in that are near the kingdom of God, to live our lives in submission to Christ our Lord and walking by the Spirit because you truly are worthy to also endure in all these things, even in the face of difficulties, even persecution. Help us remember our foundation in the gospel and to example and proclaim it to those around us. Help us to remember that we are part of the greater church. So we thank you for our fellowship here with our brothers and sisters and in Oregon and those that we are connected with in Burkina Faso, and for those that we will be given the gift of fellowship in our future. We are your people. Thank you for being our righteous, just, and faithful Lord. Jesus, you are Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. You all can have a seat. And this morning, we are going to be concluding the book of Mark. And so if you want to turn someplace in your Bible, you can turn to Mark. Uh, we're going to be in uh, right at the beginning. You're thinking, oh, no, we're starting over. No, we're just going to conclude it this morning. And then uh, next week, we're going to look at um, just kind of a vision Sunday and what we want for the, uh, the upcoming year. And then we're going to jump into the book of Daniel and start up Daniel in January. So we're excited for that. Well, I have been greatly blessed... By the last four weeks in Mark, I was encouraged as I watched three other elders teach us from the Word of God and remind us of the gospel. It's been a long time coming for this church to where even though I do the majority of the teaching, we are not a personality-driven church where one voice makes or breaks the direction of the church. That's what happens really, really with any church plant is that the church planner starts to be the person that does the speaking and, and uh, that tends to be the personality. But I'm so thankful that we've gotten to the place where other leaders can preach. And so the last four weeks, three of the last four weeks, I've been able to sit and listen and learn along with each of you. I've been blessed to hear from these men as they've exposed the text before us. And as they've done so in a fashion that shows the unity of our elders and seeking the Lord and the positive direction of our church 
in both theology and practical application. But I've also been blessed to hear from some of you regarding how the teachings have affected you and what you've gained from them. And it's amazing to be part of a church that is truly a family. And regardless of which spiritual leader is teaching us, we can look to them to glean from their study of God's Word and to understand what the Word is telling us. And so many churches and so many church attendees, unfortunately, have gotten to a place where they become consumers that judge the worship band or the preacher as if their presentation of worship in the Word of God was a product that did or did not meet their own demands. And so I'm thankful that we have slowly but surely turned away from that at this church. And so thank you to all of you for having hearts open to hear from other leaders even when I'm not here to preach. Now, sitting in that place and position of disciple and learner over three of the last four weeks, I was quickly reminded of how easy it is to become passive in my part of studying the Word. Especially for the two weeks that we were asked to be live stream only. Remember that we are a Congregationalist church that prizes participation both from the front and from each of you. I think a lot of us might come from church backgrounds where we're used to coming and sitting and being passive, as if you guys are attending a TED Talk, right? But the reality is, is that we are a congregational church, and so when we stand together, when we read together, when we give responses after the reading, when we sing to one another, when we are led by our leaders up here on the stage, we're not simply observing them. When we sing the benediction to one another, we're singing it to one another and in glory to God. Friends, these are all ways of participation. And this is especially true with the act of preaching God's word. Just as the preacher has their job of preparation and presentation and then application, each of us as listeners and learners have our jobs of preparation, receipt, and application as well. I don't know if many of you know this, but I recommend this for anyone who is going to preach for me, and then I each week do this as well. It takes about 20 hours to prepare a sermon that's presented to you guys. Half of a work week, basically. And I want to ask you, how many hours, how many even minutes, do you spend preparing your hearts to receive the Word of God any given week? 20 minutes? We have to do our part in preparing our hearts to hear from the Word of God. Because if we are not careful, we will easily slide into the role of passive listener, taking in what already makes sense to us, what we already believe, and what connects to us, and discarding the rest as if it were not applicable. It takes time and work to prepare our hearts to be ready and willing to hear. And so, in doing, we move one step closer in making ourselves the judge of the word rather than the word being judge of us if we are passive. We become more like Adam and Eve rather than Christ in our image bearing. And so all of us are active participants in that preaching and receiving of the gospel. And so as we come to the end of the gospel according to Mark, I think it's important for us to review some of the themes that we've seen throughout Mark. And I want to ask you, what have you taken away from it? I remember years ago when I attended a church that taught through the Bible uh, every time we got to an end of a book, I'd, I'd celebrate it as if it were a notch on my wall, and I'd be like, yes, we got through another book. I'm that much closer to perfection, right? And then I'd move on to the next book without taking away something that I'd truly learned. And so as we're looking at the teaching today, I wanted to entitle it this, Taking the Gospel of Mark to Heart. Taking the Gospel of Mark to Heart. 
And so today we're going to take a look at six specific themes that we've seen throughout Mark, and I will present them in an order of priority in which I personally saw them of importance, but I want to be clear that the order I present them is not inspired, right? So it's just important that we have all of them rather than worrying about the order. The first thing that we see is this, Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ and suffering servant, and the King. Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ and suffering servant, and the King. You are all probably getting very tired of hearing the major application question that sits at the core of the Gospel of Mark. Who do you say that Jesus is? But time and time again, we've seen Mark phrase the narrative or display a characteristic of Christ or tell a story or use a character in a story who even asks the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And rather than asking it again, we will finally and deliberately answer it in the fashion that Mark has given it to us. And this substantive statement on the identity and activity of the Messiah was important for so many reasons in the early church. And so Mark was writing to substantiate the person and nature and role of the Messiah. And he was setting the early church's theology of Christ. Can everybody say Christology? Christology. Christology is the theology of who Christ is. And at this point in the church, it was all oral and and, and discussed verbally, and so there wasn't a set Christology of who Jesus was. And so Mark needed to write this in order to provide an understanding of who Jesus is. But then in addition to that, the timing was interesting. Because church history tells us around 64 AD is when the apostle Peter died. And so Peter dying was a big deal to the church. And so this being written either right before he died was the church saying, man, we really need to get what's in Peter's head down on a piece of paper so it can continue on. Or it was right after his death, and John Marcus, his disciple, said, oh man, I got to get down on paper what Peter said so that we don't forget it. Meanwhile, you have the Roman army coming down on Israel with the threat of destruction. In 70 AD, they raised Jerusalem to the ground, and so the church was going to be scattered, and they knew it. And they knew that they needed to have this history. For all these reasons, Mark pens a decided Christology to cement the answer to the question, who was Jesus? And first, he says that Jesus is the Son of God. Right at the outset, the author states this clearly right there in Mark 1.1. You can see it right there. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He states that Jesus is deity. He is God come in the flesh. And there are some later manuscripts that do not have these words, and so it is footnoted. But unlike Mark 16 that we looked at last week that has no earlier manuscript evidence but later manuscript evidence, this statement in Mark 1, uh, Mark 1.1 has early manuscript evidence, but in some later manuscripts, it's not there. So we know that it was uh, sure, that it was true. But then in addition to that, he quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now notice in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who's he talking about when he quotes this, when John the Baptist quotes this very verse? Who is it that he's saying is God? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is going to come forward as the one who is the Lord. And so this is speaking very clearly that Jesus is deity. Then it's also backed by two very important witnesses. Recall in the Old Testament that anytime you wanted to prove something to to be true, you needed to have at least two witnesses. If you didn't have two witnesses, it never happened. 
And so there in Mark, we have two witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. First, you have Mark 3.11. Notice who it is that proclaims it there. It's the unclean spirits, the demonic spirits, and those who were infested by them. It says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. And then secondly, we have another witness towards the end of the book. In Mark 15, 39, we have the centurion, a Gentile who stands almost as a representative of the nations. The fact that the gospel is beginning to go out to the nations, and he says this, he stood facing Jesus, saw that in in this way Jesus breathed his last, and he said, truly this man was the Son of God. It always cracks me up. I recall uh, back probably 15 years ago, there was a Dateline special, right? And I remember the newscaster getting up there and saying, it's always been a question of if Jesus really declared to be God. And my naivete at the time, I was like, oh, that is a question, isn't it? No, it's very clear in Scripture. It's very clear. Jesus is the Son of God. And that is another way of saying he is complete in his deity. He is God. From these explicit statements and even the implicit comparisons of Jesus to God, such as having uh, power over the chaotic waters, in these ways, Mark is 100% stating Jesus is deity. He is God. There are no questions asked. But secondly, he goes on to say that Jesus is the Son of Man. This title, Son of Man, is used 14 times in 13 verses across Mark. And this is the phrase we get from the passage in Daniel 7 about the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days giving him all authority as King of Kings over all dominions, setting up a kingdom that will never be shaken, that will never be broken. We just looked at the culmination of this proclamation uh, at the end of, of Mark, but look with me at Mark 14, 62, where Jesus is standing in trial at the Sanhedrin, and it's, he says to them, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And then he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He is the one that has come in human form and flesh, whom God the Father will exalt and has exalted to a place of authority over his kingdom and really over all of creation. Third, Jesus is the Christ and suffering servant. Now I place these two together because while the first is explicitly stated eight times in Mark, the second is implicitly proclaimed along with it. For Jesus to be the anointed king and the Messiah, to be the Messiah that would come from the lineage of King David, he would have to intercede on behalf of God's people and pay the price of our rebellion against God so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And so there's a reason that the gospel has one-third of itself wrapped up in the last week of Christ's life, the death and resurrection. One-third of it is in that last week because it's declaring this truth. And in fulfilling the prophecy of the suffering servant that would come to save God's people from their sins, Jesus was the one who had borne our griefs, as Isaiah 53 says, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus became the very atoning sacrifice that took on the wrath of God that was intended for you and I, that was meant for you and I, and deserved by you and I, so that he could do away with it, so that God the Father could forgive us of our sins and draw us into relationship with him. And it goes on there to say that The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Mark authoritatively declares this Messiah to be Jesus, especially in the hinge verse in chapter 8. You remember how that was a hinge between the first and second parts of Mark. And in Mark 8, 27 through 30, it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Fourth, Jesus is the king of kings over the kingdom of God. Remember that Mark was largely silent in this idea of Jesus as king for the first 14 chapters of the gospel. The closest thing that he comes to is right at the beginning, right there in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus here comes, he intimates that the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is about to be enthroned. Do you recall when we talked about this, what the three things are that make up a kingdom? You have a king ruling a people. Everybody say it. A king ruling a people. And Jesus was saying this kingdom is at hand because, as we observed through Mark, Jesus is our king. His law of love that we even sing about at Christmas time, his law of grace, his law of mercy, that is the way he rules us and reigns us by his Holy Spirit, reigns over us by his Holy Spirit. And we are his people. But then we observed in Mark 15, Mark suddenly overwhelms us with this idea. We have this foretaste in Mark 1, but then we go for a number of chapters and don't hear anything. And in Mark 15, suddenly he overwhelms us with this idea of Jesus as king because six times in that one chapter, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews and the king of Israel, fulfilling the prophecy that he would be the king that would come, that would sit upon the throne of David for all days. Mark is clear throughout the gospel that bears his name. Jesus is the Son of God, complete in deity. Jesus is the Son of Man, complete in humanity. He is the Christ and suffering King and the King over the kingdom of God. This is who Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, this is what Mark declares is the truth about Jesus. The question for you is, is what do you believe? As we go through these, are there any that don't really play a part in your view of Jesus? If you're like most Westerners, especially Americans, you love the idea of Savior. How many Americans proclaim, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> how many Americans proclaim that Jesus is, is their Savior? Why? Because he's their fire insurance. He's their plan B. If they don't live very long, well, when they die, guess what? They get to go to the good place because one day they said they were a Christian. But what about the idea of king? What about the idea of ruling your life? What about the idea of giving up your personal freedom to a king who will rule over you? Uh, that's not a very good idea here in the U.S., is it? Which part of this Christology do you need to make more a part of your view of Christ? You see, the second you decide that one of these is true and another one is not, you have put yourself in the place just like Eve, of saying that you are the judge of what is true. 
and you remove, have removed Jesus from the throne. And so we need to ask, which of these need to be more a part of our life? Do you need to give him more reverence in that he is the almighty God? Do you need to allow him to empathize more with you in your pain as one who has experienced the human condition and knows right where you're at? Oftentimes I find people pray to him, oh, great sustainer and creator of all things, but then they don't have a relationship and they think, where is God in all of my suffering? Other times they pray to him as if there's no reverence at all, that he's their best buddy and no big deal if you don't have reverence towards him, but he knows their pain. We need to have a balance in our understanding of Christ. I want to challenge you to begin praying in a more balanced fashion as you seek Jesus in each of these capacities and roles this week. Do you need him as Savior? Do you need him as King? Well, we need him as both. Let's have a balanced Christology. Well, next, moving on from that, we see a major theme of discipleship in Mark. Discipleship. Primarily, that discipleship means proximity to Jesus and sacrifice for him. Discipleship means proximity to Jesus and sacrifice for him. In our comfortable Western society, I fear that we've forgotten this idea that sacrifice and dying to self is part of discipleship. We want discipleship to be all the provision of eternal life in the future and all the prosperity of a good life now, but with no suffering, no sacrifice, no loss of personal autonomy. In American Christianity, we have what's called faux prosperity gospel in almost every church. There are those prosperity gospel churches that state clearly, sow your seed and then you'll reap, right? They do that, and that is a false gospel. It is completely antithetical to the gospel of the Bible. It's garbage. But many Christians, myself included at times, we operate in this faux prosperity gospel where we think, well, that person over there is successful, rich, uh, it doesn't seem like there's any suffering in their life. Hey, they might even be good looking. Obviously, God has blessed them. They must be a good Christian. That person over there, well, they're suffering. So you know what? There must be some sin in their life because that's how God works. Well, guys, while it's true that following Christ will generally lead principally to a better life, right? And not following God will generally lead to suffering and destruction, uh, what you see in the Bible is that those who actually follow Christ in holiness and pursuit and purity uh, usually are the ones that end up suffering. They're usually the ones that come into contact with the world around us that's chaotic and doesn't want to worship the king and there's persecution and brokenness and heartache. And so we have to ask the question, how have we assembled discipleship in our minds? What have we made it look like? What does it look like? Is it a ladder that we're climbing to get to the highest level of holiness? As if we believe in some Eastern religion? Or is it following after Jesus in proximity and sacrificing our lives for him? Right from the beginning in Mark, we see Jesus calling the disciples to proximity. He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Innately, saying follow me means you're close, right? How quickly would you get kicked out of Simon Says if you were like, nah, you go ahead into the other room, and I'll stay here and do my own thing, right? You basically have already lost, Okay. Following the leader requires proximity, that you would follow them. What for? To draw the nations, to be fishers of men and women, and to be trained up in doing so, they stuck close to Christ. They constantly watched him and followed his lead. They learned from him, and even then they were not totally sure what they were learning. That's why I love the apostles. You guys ever feel a close connection to them? They're like right next to Jesus, and they're still completely boneheaded. 
man, that makes me feel good because that seems like my entire walk with Christ, doesn't it? Right? And so they walk with him, trying to learn from him. I think often in our Christianity, those of you who've been Christians for more than a few years, you're like, yeah, you know, I've been through Mark. I've read through the Bible chronologically a few times. I've done that Bible study. I'm good. I'll just coast from here until eternity. But guys, discipleship is constantly renewing what you're doing. Any of us who are married in this room know this, right? How well will your marriage go if you're like, I said I love you at the altar. Why do you want to hear it 10 years later, right? No, there has to be a passionate pursuit. And that passionate pursuit is the same in discipleship. Look with me at Mark 3, 14 through 15. He appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, these apostles were ambassadors of the gospel. That's what to be an apostle means. And the power over demonic beings still is very much a thing, but not necessarily normative for all who are saved. Here in this, at this point in Mark, in the establishment of the church, there was a specific power given to the apostles to substantiate their authority. Some in the current day church might still cast out demons, and that may still occur, but it's not normative for everyone who follows Christ. What is, is that you might be with him and that you might be sent in his name. Now that the authority of the church is established in the word of God and the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church, are you following close to him? Are you being sent out in his name? Brothers and sisters, when you stop and look at your own discipleship, you have to ask the question, how close are you to Jesus? And think about how quickly it can change. Again, using the example of marriage or even friendship, you know, one day, Kelly and I can be riding high and like, man, we are so tight in our marriage, right? And then the next day, right, you wake up on wrong sides of the bed, you kind of do this, you know, the dog's pooped on the carpet and the kids are running around crazy and you got to get this done, you got to get that done. And all of a sudden you're like, Boop, totally different directions. But for us in our discipleship, I think a lot of times I'm like, eh, I went to church on Sunday, I'm, I'm good, I can coast through the week and maybe I'll go to church next time. No, there needs to be that passionate pursuit, that proximity that's always there. Do you regularly thirst after his word as wisdom, life, and joy? Do you speak to him through prayer regularly? What kind of relationship would you say that you have with him? Can others look at you and go, man, that person is close to Christ? Throughout the New Testament, the local church is considered to be the body of Christ. Are you close to his body? Think about that. It's called the body of Christ. And so many people in American Christianity go, I don't need to be part of the body of Christ. I'm good by myself. Again, not to be weird, but like if I'm not proximally close to Kelly's body as my wife, is that a good marriage? Probably not. And so we have to realize that to be close to the body of Christ is to be close to Christ himself to receive the tangible love of God, to give the tangible love of God, to receive and give correction through our intimate interaction with the church. There's a reason that Augustine said, you cannot have God as father without the church as mother. Are you close to Christ because you're close to his people? And so what might need to grow in these avenues so that you are closer to Jesus in your discipleship? But then we also see that discipleship means sacrifice. I was reading a great Advent devotional with my family on Thursday night where the author, Ted Tripp, uh, declares that Christ came in selflessness to rescue us from our selfishness. And so as the Spirit leads and our flesh dies in the process of sanctification, 
we should see selfless sacrifice rise to the surface and be a fruit of the Spirit and our selfishness die down. When we were dead in sin, our lives were for our own purposes, our own ego that needed to be heard and respected and validated. But now, in Christ, we have been redeemed to give our lives to others, especially in the proclamation of the gospel. And this is what Christ intended when he said this in, the, again, the hinge chapter of, of Mark, in Mark 8, 34 through 38. Look at what he says about discipleship. And notice that there are no caveats. There's no if you want to or if it makes sense to you. Look at what he says about discipleship. He calls the crowd to him with his disciples and says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my work in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, I'm concerned about so many, maybe even in this church, maybe even sitting here today, that think, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? I'm moral. I've never killed anybody. I generally believe in a Judeo-Christian God. I'm Christian. But you have no discipleship. You don't walk close to Jesus. He doesn't rule your life. Friends, if that's you, you are outside the kingdom of God and in danger of hell. And you need to repent for the grace of God to step back into it if you've ever been there in the first place. Christ calls us to follow him and lay down our lives, not say a prayer one time and then coast as we want to for the rest of our lives. This is the truth of discipleship. Now, this may happen, laying down our lives in big and obvious ways, like our vocation, right? Some of you may end up being church planners, may end up being missionaries. Maybe when we send out a church planner one day and, and plant a church, you'll go with them to be part of the core group. These are big things. But friends, the key to discipleship is not those big home runs. It's the little things. It's whether or not you're operating in the grace and mercy and law of God in the midst of your relationships, your marriage, your kids, your friends, your roommates, your parents. It's in how you interact with the person that cuts you off as you're driving to get your last Christmas present at Kaiser Station, right? It's in the little things. It's, it's in how you react to a person wearing a mask or not. It's in how you react to the governing authorities. It's in how we respond in the chaos of life. These are the basics of discipleship because we look to Christ and we say, what would he do? I'm going to follow after him. Are we servants to one another? Maybe you're convicted in this idea and you realize that your life, as I often do, is characterized far more by selfishness than by selflessness. Beloved, if you are convicted by this and struggle to fight selfishness in your life, first of all, join the club with the rest of us that are saved sinners. But second of all, there's an easy answer. Get closer to Jesus. And so I want to ask you, what needs to change in your daily schedule, in your relationships, in your consistent interaction with a church community so that you can get closer to Jesus. Friends, it's very simple. It's very hard to get into a fight with my wife if I'm in a Bible study or if I'm hearing worship music. I mean, how many of you feel a little bit less like, you know, showing some sign language to the person that does cut you off on the way to Kaiser Station if you're singing a worship song in that moment to the glory of God who died for that person? If we're close to Jesus, our selfishness has no choice but to die away. 
But the more we just use life for ourselves, our selfishness will rise up. There's a reason why it must be a constant part of our lives. Saturate yourself in his word and his gospel. Let it overflow in the conscious choice to serve others because he first served you. Not for the purpose of getting something in return, but to simply bring glory to God. Discipleship means proximity to Jesus and sacrifice for him. I know when my heart is not right because in my service, I'm looking around and waiting for people to notice it and acknowledge it. Can you imagine if Jesus were up there and he were like, that's it, take these nails out, I'm done. Nobody's told me I'm awesome. Right? And so when we start looking to serve or looking to be sacrificial just so we can get noticed or just even so we can earn our salvation, well, we're absolutely in the wrong. Sacrifice, proximity to Jesus, these are responses to the grace-bought salvation that God's already given us. Well, third, the next theme that we see in Mark is there is an inside and an outside to the kingdom of God. In our society, we sit at the intersection of what's called inclusivism and relativism. The result is a prevailing opinion that everyone should be included unless I personally want to exclude them. You can see this just by stepping into social media. There is a judge, and he is me. It has created a new and different, but just as perverse, mob rule as we have seen all across history. And because of this, we've lost this idea that there is an inside or an outside to the kingdom. I even hear Christians all the time who are like, oh, isn't that kind of mean to like tell somebody that they're going to hell? Isn't that kind of mean to say that that person has to go through church discipline? That's not very loving. Would Christ do that? Christ is the one that told us to do church discipline. He's the one that told us there's an inside and an outside. Now, many will conclude that this is an awful God that wants to keep any person out of the quote-unquote good place, popularly known as heaven. But bad eschatology and end times theology aside there, in fact, this idea is contrary to the truth that anybody can just kind of meander their way into the kingdom of God. The truth is that God, on his part, has done everything possible to give us a path to be one with him. He's done his part 110%. He's offered a free and gracious gift to us and said, take it, I'm inviting you into my kingdom. So the question then remains, why on earth, if a person is rebelling against God in this life, would they even want to be part of him in the next Isn't that weird that a person would choose complete rebellion and to be their own God and judge in this life and then all of a sudden they go, oh, but for eternity I want to be with a God who's going to be king over me? And so in effect, moving into eternity is God giving us what we want. If our life in this earth is, God, I want to be with you, then he's made a way possible for that by his grace. But if our life is, I want to operate in rebellion against you, at the end of days, he's going to go, enter into what you've wanted the entire time. And so he's a good God. You see, eternity is not about the good place and the bad place, as is popularly thought. It's about being one with God, submitted to his reign of righteousness and justice, or being divided from God while we glory in lawlessness and justice and believing that we are the source of truth and what is right. Your place in eternity is not based upon whether you or I deserve the good place or bad place, because quite honestly, we don't deserve the good place known as heaven, the abode of God. 
We deserve the bad place. The Greek word is Gehenna. It's the word we use, hell. It is the lake of fire, the place of eternal torment, the place where justice is finally done against a rebellious human being like me who wants to live life in my own way and discard Christ as king. That's the truth. And so in Mark, there is a definite inside and outside. You might recall Mark 4, 10 through 11. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Paul would go on to use this phrase, insiders and outsiders, all across his epistles. And interestingly, he always talks about it in connection with a person who is part of a local church. Being connected to the body of Christ. That doesn't mean that being in the church is a way of salvation. That's what early Catholicism taught and one of the things that the reformers fought against. But it is the question of if you're not actively part of a local body of believers who gather together to preach the gospel and proclaim Christ as Lord, are you even a disciple of Christ? Within this theme, we might be surprised to hear who is inside the kingdom and who is outside. The apostles are presented throughout Mark as bumbling buffoons, yet another reason that I associate with them. And yet at the end, there is a promise that they will be restored by Christ and empowered to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because guess what? It's not about your intellect. It's not about your ability. It's about your willingness to die and let Christ take over. The religious leaders, which one would think they would absolutely be inside the kingdom, they are shown, for the most part, to be completely outside God's reign, actually acting on behalf of the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus even seems to redefine the idea of intimate relationships, especially family. Now, you'd think if you wanted to get into the club called heaven, that if you knew the doorman and you were his mom, you'd get in, right? I mean, that kind of goes without saying. But look at what Jesus says in Mark 3.31. His mothers and his brothers came and standing, notice the word, outside. Now, this is narratively describing that they're outside the place where Jesus is, but I think Mark is trying to reiterate something for us. They sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about, uh, about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. One of the most shocking things as I've done college ministry over the years and high school ministry is when kids growing up start to really pursue Christ and then they take a look back at their parents and they're like, ew. Yeah, you know what? I never saw them with their Bible. I never saw them pray. I never saw them work on reconciliation in their marriage. I never saw them attend church. Wait a minute. I don't think my parents who proclaim to be Christians are actually Christians. Dun, dun, dun. And you know what I tell them? You're right. <laughs> because if I tell them, oh no, mom and dad are fine. What have I just done to their discipleship? Totally nosedive into the ditch. Parents, your kids watch you. And if you proclaim to be a follower of Christ and you have a halfway discipleship, guess what your children will have? A halfway discipleship. But most likely, it'll probably be a quarter way. Because a copy of a copy is always less. 
That's why this is true and this is loving for Mark to tell us. Mark tells us in love this idea that there is an inside and an outside and we need to carry this through the church because this is truth and it's to not tell someone this is not loving. To not tell them that their life is headed for destruction is not loving. And this is corporately and and communally part of how we preach the gospel as a church. We have membership because there is an inside and an outside. Well, I don't really like that idea of membership, so I'm going to stay outside. That's your choice. And that's why I invite all of you who want to participate in this church to be members. Does membership purchase you salvation? Absolutely not. Not being members, does that say that you're not saved? Absolutely not. But why on earth would you not want to be part of a local church? I guarantee you that when a a boy comes along and says to my daughter, hey, you know, I want to be with you and marry you and be romantic with you and sexual with you, but I don't really want the whole, like, you know, formal thing of being married. What do you think I'm going to say to him as a good dad? Probably not something I want to say over live stream. Because that person doesn't want my daughter. They want their selfish pursuits. Membership is part of how we proclaim the gospel, that we lay our lives down for one another. We submit to one another. And it's part of how we as a body say, Salem and Kaiser, look at this person. They're a follower of Jesus. And church discipline is how we lovingly say to someone who's not doing that, brother or sister, you are in danger of being outside the kingdom of God. We're not the ones who get to decide, but we want to declare to you that you're in danger. Please come back. It's loving, and that's what... This is where the idea comes from, is this idea of an inside and an outside, because one day, this is what will happen. Look at Revelation 22, 14 through 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now you might say, oh, good thing I'm not in there. I am not a murderer. I'm not a dog, I'm not a sorcerer, whew, good thing, right? Friends, my background is sexual immorality, it's hatred towards plenty of other humans, which Jesus classifies as murder in the Sermon on the Mount. I had idolatry of basketball and women and success and money and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Anytime I tell myself I'm on the throne and Jesus is not, I'm a liar. Was I going to be outside or inside? Everybody tell me. Outside. That was my eternal future until the grace of God hit me like a two by four and said, I have paved a way for you to give that up and pursue me. Praise God for that day. Are you inside or outside the kingdom of God? Are you inside the kingdom of God because you've accepted the free gift of Christ's salvation and have engaged in the journey of sanctification through the spirit in the midst of God's people? Or are you outside, living in lawlessness and sin, but maybe also saying with your mouth that you are Christ's when in secrecy, in your own heart, and your own actions, you proclaim clearly that you are not? If you're the first, if you have accepted that, then let today be a day of rejoicing and praise because you are inside the kingdom of God. But if the second, as we come to the time of response and communion, I would beg of you, to repent and confess your sin to Christ and call for his forgiveness. 
And then I want to call you to enter fully into relationship with this body. If you're a visitor here and you're like, wow, this guy is serious, true. But beyond that, if you stay here and this is your home, we want you to be part of the family. We want you to make your declaration serious about submitting to one another. And we want to call you into that membership. If you're just visiting from another church, I want to encourage you to dig into that church, whether or not they have membership, and to be part of that church in a serious way and loving the members. There is an inside and an outside to the kingdom of God. And the question is, where do you find yourself today and where do you want to be? Jesus has paved the way inside the kingdom. You just need to lay down your pride and surrender to it. Well, next, fourth, we see that the kingdom of God is amongst us. In the last few weeks, I've posted some blogs answering the question of why we gather. And in those, I have noted that the church is a forerunner of the heavenly assembly and a current embodied reminder to the world that Christ reigns and will come again. Hebrews 12.23 calls us the assembly, the word there in the Greek is ekklesia, which elsewhere is translated church, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We are a forerunner of the kingdom to come. Now, while it is true that the church is not the fullness of the kingdom, and we can all say a hearty amen to that, because if this was all there is, we'd probably be a little bit bummed out, right? While it's true that the church is not the fullness of the kingdom, it is a foretaste of it, because remember, the church has a king. Who's our king? Jesus. Does he rule over us by his word and Holy Spirit? Yes. And are we his people? Absolutely. And so in chapter 1 of Mark, after he emerges from his baptism and wilderness temptation, like we said, he cries out and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Why did he say this? Because the kingdom of God was at the very door because the king was present, but he had yet to gather a people and be crowned as king. But by the end of Mark, that was established. And this is why Mark narrates the story of Jesus and his horrific coronation and enthronement upon the cross. He shows that Christ died in order to become king over a people. In dying as the atoning sacrifice, he allowed us to come to him and to call the nations to himself to establish a people over whom he reigns. And so the kingdom is not fully here because the physical vestiges of original sin in creation and society and the laws we have and in our own neural pathways, that original sin, sin still exists in each of our earthly vessels. But the kingdom has been inaugurated. It's been started because we now have a king seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. We have a rule in righteousness and justice through his word and Holy Spirit. And we have a people, one another. And this is why the book of 1 John says, how do you know that you love God and love Jesus? Well, you love his people. It's awesome. Those days where I'm really doubting my salvation because I'm just, you know, kind of a schmuck. I'm like, oh man, I, I wonder if I'm even saved. What do I look to? I look to a number of things. One, am I submitted to him? Two, is there fruit growing in my life? Three, am I submitted to his people and do I love them and do they love me? Man, what an awesome way to give us confidence in our salvation. If we're pursuing those things, then we know that we are in the midst of his kingdom and that the kingdom is taking place in front of us. And so while we cannot see the fullness of his kingdom of shalom in the world around us, we get a glimpse of it as we gather in praise, as we engage in sanctifying relationships, and as we struggle together to grow into the fullness of his image. While the kingdom is not fully here yet, it is definitely amongst us in embodied form. 
I get so sad for Christians that are waiting for the kingdom to come when in fact you have a foretaste of it right now. The kingdom to come is Jesus ruling. Guess what? Jesus rules right now. Did you know that? The kingdom to come is the fullness of peace. Guess what? You can pursue peace and reconciliation right now. We can get that foretaste. Friends, are you personally seeking to surrender your life to his rule of righteousness and justice? You know that you are if you are seeking after his word to transform your worldview and heart. Are you surrendered to the accountability that comes with being a member of a local body, looking proactively for others to call you to walk in his reign? Man, I long for the day where the fullness of people that gather here, members and attendees, that we can all walk in a consistent pattern of humility and confession and reconciliation in our interactions so we can see Christ's rule truly among us. Have you decided to play your part in that culture, that culture of humility and confession and reconciliation? Is that present in your relationships and are you working on it? And perhaps today is the day to employ these tools or at least pray that God would empower you to do so. The kingdom of God is amongst us. Do we believe that and play in our, our part in it? A couple more. I'm almost finished here. Fifth, we see throughout Mark that we are to have endurance in the face of persecution and changing times. As we begin Daniel in January, we will cover this idea in great detail. It's chock full of it. But even as we looked at the surrounding context context of Mark, especially in Mark 13, we saw the call of Mark to those first century believers to endure in the midst of persecution that was coming from the Roman Empire and to be okay even though transition in the church was occurring. Remember, they were moving from the apostles to the next generation, and that was scary. And so he said, endure, realize it's going to be okay. Jesus told us in Mark 13, 7, not to be afraid. Don't be alarmed, he said. He told us in Mark 13, 23, he said, be on guard, but remember, I've told you all these things, so they shouldn't shock you. Guys, it should not shock us that the world wants chaos. It should not shock us that there's conflict around us. It should not shock us when people want to vote in things that are destructive. Guys, it should not shock us. It should not shock us, even though there are things we fight against, like abortion. It should not shock us that the world around us wants those things. I'm always blown away when Christians are like, oh, I can't believe the sinners are acting sinful. Why are you shocked, right? The reality is, is that God has told us it would be like this. And so what is our part in this? In essence, to trust that when the world looks in chaos and flames, that we can look to God and be stable. And therefore, the world can look to the Christian church and see that we are preaching the gospel, and around the gospel, we're preaching the message of stay calm and carry on. Don't freak out. The message of the gospel has not changed, and it will not change, regardless of famine or pandemic or political conspiracy, or cyber sabotage, or voting machines, or racial riots, or protests, or counter-protests, or vaccines. Should I go on? <laughs> Regardless of these things, we have a mission to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. 
that he died for our sins, rose from the dead in victory, ascended as king, and is coming to judge the living and the dead and establish his righteous kingdom forever. Guys, if I could live a thousand years, I pray that I could stand here and preach that gospel until that dying day. And I pray that we would be a church that no matter if there's floodwaters coming over the top of Salem, that the world could look around and go, you know what, I, I know where there's Christians gathered. I'm going to go over there to mission and see what's going on. As I was driving across the uh, sea, formerly known as McGilchrist this morning, and I pulled up to Lake St. Mary and Lake St. Joseph, as we would have called them at Notre Dame, and I got out of my car, I thought to myself, you know, should I be worried? Are people not going to... No, Christians will come, and they'll put on their galoshes and their masks, and they'll gather. We need to be a place of stability for the world that no matter what happens, we preach the gospel. And so when times are tough, it is good and right to take our emotions and pains and complaints to the Lord, but then we seek his face, look to his word, unite as one together, and continue proclaiming the gospel as we've been tasked with proclaiming. Jesus' disciples are to have endurance no matter what happens, whether persecution or changing times. Brothers and sisters, in this last year of chaos, I want to ask you, what is your response told you is needed in terms of your walk with Christ and relationship to his people. Have you seen that Jesus is your ever-present help in times of trouble, the one that you turn to first so that you can be steadied in the storm? Is prayer the first thing you go to? I know for me, man, COVID hit and March was like a wake-up call. I'm like, wow, I go to prayer last. And I'm an elder. I can't even imagine <laughs> what's going on out there in the Christian church, Right? I thought to myself, how on earth can, can I have so little trust in God? What has this time shown you? And how have you grown more reliant upon God and upon the encouragement of those with whom you're in community and sought to serve them? Or have you grown isolated and discouraged, waiting for someone else to initiate relationship? And I've figured out in this last nine months that I need you. I need you, brothers and sisters not as a pastor, not to keep a church going, but as a brother in Christ. Raise your hand if you miss hugs. Anybody? I need your hugs. Like, I'm dying. These elbow things, right? It's killing me. I need you to help me walk as a Christian. And I would hope that you would say the same thing to everyone around you. And so let's let the end of Mark be a challenge to us to ask ourselves, what might need to be adjusted in our practical walk with Christ so that when chaos hits us again, which it will, either individually or communally, we can weather the storm and keep preaching? Well, lastly, the last theme I want to point out to you is this one, the necessity and urgency of evangelism. As we wrapped up Mark 16, 1 through 8, the section that most early manuscripts indicate is the end of the original gospel according to Mark, we saw that the question has been answered as to who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man, Christ and the suffering servant. He is the King of kings. And he is the agent of God's divine mercy and grace sent to bring the world to ultimate peace and shalom. The good news, friends, has been delivered. And now we as hearers of that news must realize it is ours to take forward, even as that longer ending of Mark declared in a, a shorter but still pertinent Great Commission. But first, we have to decide if we believe it. Friend, if you have been walking with Christ in a halfway fashion, you are wasting your time. Either decide to go and live it up in the chaos 
or repent and follow Christ. If we decide that we believe this, we must repent from what we used to believe and turn to Christ and submit to his role as Savior and King and be baptized into his kingdom of people. If you've not proclaimed that he's your king, today is the day to do that. If you've not been baptized, we would love to talk with you about what baptism would look like. We'd love to talk with you about what discipleship looks like. Myself or one of the other elders that are here would love to chat with you about that. And with this call to not only be disciples, he's also given us a call to evangelism. And there's an urgency with it. Throughout Mark, we saw this urgency. 36 times in 35 verses, he used the word immediately. This word, when I read Mark, I kind of get anxious, right? Like everything's an immediately. Like, oh man, he's going super fast. But it's the word in the Greek, euthus, which is rendered in the English immediately. It gives the gospel a sense of expediency and urgency. And I think that's meant to transfer on to us. We must see the need to live and pass out the good news of God as something that is urgent in our need. I think we've all become very acquainted with numbers, right? Because we look at that COVID number and we think, oh my goodness, 307,000 people have died or whatever it is today, which every single death is tragic. We look at that and we go, we got to do something, man. We got to get the vaccine going. We got to get the masks going. We have to socially distance. Do you know that 150,000 people, half of that number, move into eternity globally every day? 150,000 people die and move into eternity every day on this planet. What's our urgency to proclaim the gospel to them? If you're urgent about COVID, you darn well better be urgent about the proclamation of the gospel. What is our urgency with the gospel? And guys, we can't be, yes, we're connected to Burkina and we proclaim the gospel there, but we can't be going, oh man, I got to get to Siberia. I got to preach the gospel in Mozambique. Yes, that is a good call, but realize he's placed you here to be an ambassador here. If you are the ambassador to England, you don't worry about what's going on in Bulgaria. You think, how on earth can I be the ambassador to England? And so how can each of us take on this call, this mission we've been given to make disciples of Jesus Christ in our families, neighborhoods, with our coworkers and other students and friends? So let's do what is necessary to make sure that we each are taking responsibility for that discipleship in our own lives. Let's go then and draw others into this kingdom that is coming in the fullness of grace and mercy and truth and love. Let's take on that necessity and that urgency. And so at the end of Mark, we have one big question, and that is, what will each of us take from it? What will each of us take from the book of Mark? Whether it's something that you've gleaned from today and that's what's locking in, or whether it's something else you learned 25 weeks ago, I just want us to ask the question, what am I going to take from Mark and move forward with? I hope we take all of this and more, and as a church and as individual disciples are forever changed because of it. Amen? Amen. Amen.